Corinthians chapter number 5. First Corinthians chapter number 5. We've been now for about the last four months working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1-2 establishes, I don't know that the theme of the book is even the best word, it establishes the direction that Paul is going in the letter with these people, which is that they have been set aside for God in this world. And that is true of all churches, but the Lord in His wisdom and in His providence makes a point of that in Corinthians because these are a people who are certainly saved, and that is never called into question. But they are also people who are very confused um, about their relationship in this world. And that is obvious from the way that Paul talks to them, and it is obvious from the passage this evening. Uh, Let's read together the the entirety of the chapter. It is fairly short, uh, but we will take a couple of weeks to work our way through it completely. 1 Corinthians 5.1, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from you. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present, concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within. But them that are without God judgeth, therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. So we know that 1 Corinthians, well, let's pray. And I guess I should ask the Lord's help before we go any further. Father, I pray for us as a body, not only that we would understand the content of 1 Corinthians, but that we would live it. 
that the things you wish to never happen in Corinth never happen in American churches. And so we pray for that grace as well. Understanding, comprehension, obedience, submission. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul, of course, started this church. We can read about that in the book of Acts. He spent a year and a half there. It was his second longest tenure in any one location. As far as we know, three years in Ephesus, a year and a half at Corinth. He established this church. We know that Paul and Apollos shared ministries both to the church at Ephesus and to the church at Corinth. And we know that there have been a series of letters that go back and forth between them. Paul had written to them already. That's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5. It is not part of Scripture. He had written to them. They had written to him. And what we have is 1 Corinthians is his response to that letter. Before he gets to their questions, he tackles things that are of concern, of course, ultimately to the Lord and also to himself. And so before he gets to what they want to know, he talks to them about what they need to know. And they need to know the bulk of the book to this point, the first four chapters, have dealt with their worldliness when it comes to the way they view spiritual leadership, which is just staggering to even think that that could be such a thing, that we could think improperly about the spiritual leaders that God gives us. But you don't need to spend much time around fundamentalism to know that as staggering as it might seem, it is a very real problem for both people to elevate spiritual leaders above what they ought and for some spiritual leaders to allow themselves to be elevated above what they ought. And now we have what comes to us really, I don't want to say as a unit, but in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, Paul talks to them about really three subjects. He talks to them about sex, and he talks to them about money, and then he will talk to them about sex again, and then he will talk to them about their status or their state in this world. And so before Paul ever gets in 1 Corinthians 8 to the question they ask, these are the things that they need to deal with. And again, I would point out that they need to deal with them from the position of understanding that God has called them out of the world and left them in Corinth so that they might have a ministry to the Corinthians that are remaining in the world. And all of the things that are being discussed there, the way they think about ministry and spiritual leaders and the way they think about sin or whether it even is sin, are all reflections of that. So let's just come to this chapter then. And what I want to do this evening is rather than just simply walk through it verse by verse, I want to just ask some questions of the passage to make sure that we are in sync with what Paul is concerned about. Which then is my segue into the first question that I would ask of the text that we should be asking of the text. What is Paul's main concern in 1 Corinthians 5? 
What is the thing that he is most distraught about? And let me provide you, of course, the answer to that, which is Paul's biggest concern, I would propose to you, is that the church in Corinth doesn't understand the distinction that God views between the church and the world. It doesn't really see itself as a distinctive entity. That it is no longer the world. And let let, let me just... Give you, let's just walk again. Again, I'm not going to read all through the passage, but, but let me read some of the verses that would explain to you why I would take that tack. Verse number two. You are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from you. Now, so whatever's going on here, folks, Paul is upset that they have not removed the person from among them. In other words, in Paul's mind, there is this great division. And what this person is doing is of such import and such magnitude that there is no place for him among the Corinthian church. He needs to be removed. Or verse number 5, to deliver such an one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Or verse number 6, your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And again, this is a, this is a favorite formula that Paul uses with these people who have come across to him as having this vast, extensive body of knowledge. And so Paul will say to them pretty regularly, well, did you know this? And now he asks them what seems to be an almost no-brainer for question. Do you not understand this, that a little leaven will leaven the entire loaf? Or verse number 11, but now I have written unto you not to keep company If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or idolater or railer or drunkard or an extortioner with such an one not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? There's the division. Do not ye judge them that are within. There's the division. Now I'm not saying folks that Paul is ambivalent or indifferent to the actual sin. But I would point out to you that 1 Corinthians 5 is not addressing the sin. It is addressing the church's response to the sin. Paul is not correcting them because somebody has committed this sin. He is correcting them because the church, knowing that somebody has committed this sin, has handled this, for lack of a better word, but I don't think it's a bad word, they have handled it in a worldly manner. They have taken a worldly approach to the sin that is going on. 
they have failed to recognize that there really is, folks, this is not paranoia. This is solid Bible theology. There is an us versus them reality to belonging to the church of God. We are God's people. They are not. We answer to the Lord in a way that they do not. We serve the Lord. They do not. We are called to a lifestyle that they do not embrace. There is no communion between the church and the world. There is no fellowship between the church and the world. There is no common bond between the church and the world in the sense of sharing anything. It doesn't exist. They are out to get us. And folks, if we're doing what we're called to do, we are out to get them. We are out in evangelism to extract them from the world that is their enemy and not their friend. And so the church at Corinth has failed to grasp this. They have looked at the sin. They have drawn conclusions and reacted to the sin. And those conclusions and reactions are improper because they fail to understand that there is no place for that kind of conduct among the body of believers. Now we're to be careful in our relationship with unbelieving people. Paul will later write to the church to not give any offense to the unbelieving world. We will soon enough deal in Titus chapter 3 where Paul points out the right kind of behavior that we are to have even towards lost people. But folks, we should never be under any illusions about this. We do that for the sake of the testimony of the gospel so that it might have a hearing so that those people will come to Christ and be delivered from the world. So returning back then to the entirety of the chapter Paul is not simply distraught that there is immorality among the congregation. He is really distraught that the congregation is not handling the immorality biblically and drawing what would seem to be a very hard line. And it is the sharpness of the line that Paul is espousing that we find so unacceptable, is it not? I have heard more than one pastor defend something along these lines with this explanation, but we're just trying to minister to people. And we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit more next week. But there there is a difference between us, folks, between us and the world, that some dimensions of worldliness cannot be tolerated. And if they are practiced by someone in the congregation, that person is to be removed from the congregation. Which brings me then to the second question, well, what is the catalyst to Paul's reaction? 
what exactly is the sin? Because we don't want to minimize that. And one of the reasons that we want to be careful here, folks, is that not every sin gets the kind of reaction that Paul is talking about. The the church doesn't have only this nuclear option in its arsenal. But again, let's go back to the text. Chapter 5, verse number 1. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. And in fact, in the Greek language, which allows the writer to put the important parts at the first, regardless of what part of speech they are, the very first word that Paul uses is the word commonly. Everybody knows this. Everybody knows this. This is not a secret. And in fact, folks, I would argue on the basis of the way Paul talks to them that this is not even one of those things that could be classified as an open secret where everybody knows it, but nobody's really talking about it. Everybody knows it. Everybody is addressing it. Everybody is weighing in on it. Nobody is weighing in on it properly. Nobody is addressing it correctly. But everybody is addressing it. A reminder, folks, that churches really, although we operate in many ways democratically and we are certainly a congregationally, you know, a congregationally run assembly, right? God is really not operating a democracy. He never says to any church, well, whatever the, whatever the congregation decides is right, I'll live with that. Not at all. Not at all. So back to the verse, verse number one. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. A, a very broad word describing a wide array of sexual offenses. And one of the reasons that we under, would understand that is just the way that Paul writes it. There is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles. So out of all the kinds of fornication that there could be, Paul is going to talk to them about one particular dimension of fornication, and that is found at the end of verse number one, that one should have his father's wife. And I just want to pause there for a moment. Not because of the text, but just for for years, right? For years, I have tried to make the argument that the man was actually engaged with his birth mother, fornication not found among the Gentiles. But I, I do, but I really think that that's an extreme view that really will not bear the weight of Scripture, although, again, for many years I was very fond of it, and I thought that was the right way to handle the text. And I based that in part upon the fact that Paul said not even the Gentiles were doing this. And folks, we have to recognize that Imagine Paul's shock to discover that there's something commonly dis- discussed going on in the church of Corinth that you can't, found in, you can't find in pagan society. We know that Roman civilization is heavily based upon Greek civilization. We know that much of Roman religion is incorporated from Greek religion. They took the Greek gods and gave them Latin names and went on their way to worship them. The Greeks 
we're really not all that uncomfortable with incest, and I'm not an expert in Greek mythology, but Greek mythology is fairly well, fairly heavily laden with incestuous relationships. This God had relations with this member of the family, and we had this deity that came out of it. But the Romans just did not go that far. They were relatively promiscuous people, but they did not tolerate incest easily. But, but the big issue, and let me ask you if you would to turn to Leviticus chapter 18, which, which is really Leviticus 18 is why I have come around in my view to the more traditional view that we're talking about a young man's stepmother. Leviticus chapter 18 and verse number 7. The nakedness of thy father or the nakedness of thy mother shalt thou not uncover. She is thy mother. Thou shalt not uncover her nakedness. Right? So, so God specifically prohibits that kind of incestuous relationship. I mean, that's Black and white, easy to see. And then you have verse number 8. The nakedness of thy father's wife shalt thou not uncover. It is thy father's nakedness. Well, in verse number 8, the father's wife is obviously not the birth mother of the person because that's been addressed in verse number 7. So this is either another wife, because the Jews did practice polygamy, or this is a stepmother in that birth mother died or birth mother was divorced and another wife was brought in. So when Paul is, what Paul is doing here, evidently, is quoting the Old Testament. Notice the way that he frames it in 1 Corinthians 5.2, fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. He is not quoting Leviticus 18.7, he is quoting Leviticus 18.8. He is quoting a verse that would, would lead us to understand that he is talking about a stepmother at some level. He is quoting that passage. So the fornication that is not being mentioned in the Roman world is an ongoing relationship with the man's stepmother. And the word have in verse number one indicates an ongoing relationship as opposed to what we would call a casual relationship. So there's been this ongoing relationship between a man in the church and his stepmother who is, by the way, almost certainly not within the church. Because all of the weight of the condemnation is falling upon the man and is not falling upon the couple. And Paul is going to point out later in the chapter that he has no responsibility to judge outsiders. 
He's not, he's not thrilled that this stepmother is involved with her stepson. But this is a church matter. And the church weighs in when it comes to church people. And so the young man, or the man, he may not be a young man, the man is being singled out. Although the woman is certainly complicit in the sin. But again, the perspective is, this is a church. And what goes on outside of the church is not church. And you can't allow not church to govern church. Church has to govern church. Which brings me to the third question, right? First question, what is Paul's overarching concern? They fail to recognize the distinction between the church and the world. What is the catalyst for that fault? An ongoing incestuous relationship within the assembly between a man who is in the assembly and a woman who is not in the assembly. Everybody knowing this, what is the church position about it? That's the third question. And Paul describes their attitude a couple of ways. Chapter 5 and verse number 2. Ye are puffed up. You are puffed up about this. Paul has accused them of being puffed up in 4.6, 4.18. He will accuse them in 8.1 and in 13.4 of the same thing, being puffed up, being inflated, being filled with air. Right? This is, a, this is their pride. And in chapter 5 and verse number 6, he says that they are boasting about this. You're glorying. Your glorying. Their, their inflated view of this has led to them bragging about this. And again, this is another phrase or word that Paul has used with the church. In 129 and 131, he has condemned them for glorying in men and told them to glory in the Lord. And what Paul says in verse number 2 is that what they should have been doing was mourning. The church should have been broken and grieved. And, and Paul has something in mind. He wants that grief to come to a certain type of activity that their pride is never going to do. <clears throat> we'll come to that <clears throat> But let me just point out to you, if you're looking at, at verse number 2, ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned the word that is, right? That's that little word that carries the idea of in order that or so that. You should have, you didn't mourn, had you mourned, you would have come to this conclusion that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. He would be removed. Had they mourned, that's what they would have done. Had they grieved over the sin and over the offense to the assembly, 
that's what they would have done. And I would just pause here, folks, and point out to you that many, I mean, if we were dealing with this in our church, right? I mean, we can can look at 1 Corinthians 5 from some bit of distance. But if we were dealing with this in our church, if, if we found out that there was an incestuous relationship, right? And I'm just going to keep it right straight down the line of this magnitude. And we were all talking about it. And we were all tolerant of it. One of the questions that we would be asking ourselves is why are we tolerant of it? What is it about that relationship that seems to be so acceptable to us? And a lot of the things, folks, what I'm getting at is a lot of the things that in the modern church we would want to bring into the equation so that we felt like we had the right decision-making process. Right? We know that there's a relationship between a man and his father's wife. Where's dad? Where is the father? Is he in the church? Is he out of the church? Is he living? Is he dead? Where is he? What is his role in this? What is his attitude? We don't know anything. How big is the age difference? Is the, is the stepson younger or older than the stepmother? And by how many years? And I've already pointed out the fact that the text leads us to believe that the woman herself is not in the church and therefore not counted among those who would be believers. And one of the things that we do know is that this is not a marriage. Or Paul would have talked about it in terms of marriage. But this is an ongoing intimate relationship between two people who are not married. But again, we don't know if she's widowed. And these are the kind of questions, folks, that would get asked, that people would want to know about, that they would feel are important. But they are not important to the Lord. I mean, what's important to the Lord is this. There's this incestuous relationship going on and the church is not addressing it properly. And that's all you need to know. That's what you need to know. There are no mitigating factors, folks, that are going to, that are going to sanitize this or make it acceptable. No amount of deep, heartfelt commitment on the part of either party is going to wash away the stench of what is happening to the church. But on the other hand, folks, the text does not explain why it is that the church was bragging about this. And of all the questions that I would love to have answered, that's the one I would like to know. What is it about this situation that has the church so 
supportive of it. Mourning? Why would we be mourning? We're happy for them. And one of the questions that gets asked, and we just don't know the answer, is, is this their idea of what genuine Christian liberty looks like? In other words, folks, are they, are they taking this kind of a position? And we don't know. That, yeah, this is probably technically wrong, but, you know, if you're going to reach Corinthians, you've got to have to be somewhat flexible. Or is it the kind of thing, folks, that they've just looked at the circumstances and they found it to be the very best possible solution? Dad died. She was all alone. Uh, yeah, they probably shouldn't be living together, but we're just glad that somebody's taking care of her and, and we're glad that they're... We don't know the answer to those questions. But again, folks, biblically, it is very simple and very straightforward. And all of those kinds of mitigating or aggregating fa- aggravating factors don't come into the equation. You are violating a clear scriptural prohibition. <clears throat> you are engaged with your father's wife. You may not do that. Nothing about salvation by grace and being free from the law makes that kind of fornication tolerable. And you're not dealing with it properly, period, end of the conversation. Which brings me then to the fourth question that we will raise tonight and spend more time on next week. What should the church be doing? What does God want from a church in that kind of a situation? Let me just point out to you that... The structure of the chapter revolves heavily around, again, not the sin that is being committed by the man, but the sin that is being committed by the church in not dealing with the sin of the man. Verses 2 through 5 are one collection of Paul addressing the church response. talks about the offender. It is commonly reported that there's this fornication. You can't find this fornication anywhere. The one should have his father's wife. You're puffed up. You're not rather mourning. Here's what you need to do. Verse number five. Let's go to verse number four. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So whatever is going on there, folks, and, and I would argue that what, what Paul is describing there is what we think of as church discipline. Right? Paul is not suggesting that the church should build a scaffold and hang the man. Paul is suggesting, he's actually not suggesting, he is instructing them in verse number 2 that the man should be removed, that he should be removed, verse number 5, by being in essence handed over to Satan 
and removed from whatever protection he might have in the body, which is something we really don't think about. We don't really think about having any kind of shelter or covering by being part of a local assembly, but God does. That one of the ways that God keeps us and protects us and keeps us safe in this world is by having us be united with the body of believers and meeting with them regularly. This man needs to be removed. He needs to be dealt with. He needs to be cut off. And again, we will deal with this more next week, but verse number four, folks, is loaded with spiritual, scriptural authority for this. In the name of the Lord, in the power of Christ, my spirit, all of the authorization that is necessary is vested to the church to deal with these kinds of issues. And then Paul comes back in verse 6 and down through the end of the chapter and he deals with the same subject. He, he, I don't want to say he repeats himself, but he does repeat himself with some expansion, right? Verses 2 through 5, this is what is going on. You are not broken about it. You are puffed up about it. This is what you ought to do about it. You need to deal with the man. Now let me come back and expand, elaborate upon that. Your glorying is not good. You think it's good, but it's not good. You think you're doing a good thing by approving this and celebrating it, but you're not doing a good thing. And he goes on to explain to them why it's not a good thing, because it's not an isolated thing. A little leaven leavens the entirety The American view would be, well, there are two consenting adults, and who are we to judge? And the Bible position is, it doesn't work that way in a church. And it doesn't work that way in a church, folks. It doesn't work that way in a church. And so you need to deal with the offender. You need to deal with him deliberately and specifically. And so verse number 13, he comes to the same conclusion. Right? So you have these two cycles of Paul talking about the offense and the offender and the right response to the church. He needs to be removed. Hand him over to Satan. Get him out of the assembly. 1 Corinthians 5.13 Them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. The responsibility of the assembly to put that wickedness away. Deal with the man. Again, folks, we will will talk about this in more detail next week. but I I implore you to allow God's thinking and rationale to color your thinking about these kinds of things. Right? It sounds very mean-spirited, doesn't it? This man needs the ministry of the church, and he should be allowed to have the ministry of the church, and you're not going to help anybody if they're not part of the ministry of the church. 
But what God is doing is looking at the assembly as a whole. And he is going for the sake of the entirety of the body. He needs to go. If he is allowed to stay, you're thinking, we're maybe going to help him by letting him stay. And God's going, no, everybody's going to be corrupted if you let him stay. He's got to go. He's got to go. And we will talk about this next week, right? Because we have, we have an inspired resolution to the whole problem. What happened? We know what the church did, and we know what the outcome of what the church did. So we are not left hanging here when it comes to this particular issue. But that's next week. We are a sanctified people, folks.